Well, how are you doing today? You guys doing great? You feel like you're awake, you're ready to go? I'm excited. Uh, so I, I do want to welcome you, uh, whether you're uh, here in our main, uh, main auditorium or in our worship center or in the back back there. I see you. There's like five of you back there. Good to see you back there. Uh, yeah, waving good. That's good. Or over in the summit, I want to welcome you in as we go into our time of teaching. My name is Mike. I'm one of the pastors here. And so if it's your very first time, I want to welcome you. Um, inside your program is a message note sheet. We're going to be using that as our time of teaching. And so I encourage you to take that out. And if you guys are ready to go, then I'm all set. You guys ready to go? All right, let's pray. God, we're just excited to be here, and we thank you for this, uh, this opportunity and this incredible week, and we celebrate the freedom of our nation, that we're able to come and celebrate our freedom in Christ and what it means to be a follower of Jesus and what your death and resurrection means for us. So today, as we continue this series, we pray you'd be with us. I pray you'd be with me with great clarity as I, as I share, as I teach. I pray that we'd hear most of all your voice, and we, we'd hear kind of the next steps in our journey, what we need to know next in order to follow you, and we pray this in your name. Amen. Well, today we're continuing this series that we've been in now uh, since the start of the year called Jesus the Crucified King. And for those of you who are brand new, uh, this is a, a series about the life and teaching of Jesus. It's actually the third uh, in a trilogy of series uh, on the life and teaching of Jesus, uh, as seen and told through the eyes of one of the leaders of the early church. Uh, his name is Mark, and he writes a gospel account. And so... Uh, in this final series, we've watched as Jesus has come into Jerusalem. It's the last week of his life. He's come into increasing conflict with the religious leaders who see him as a threat to their authority. Uh, and so the last, uh, I don't know, six, eight weeks, we've been watching as Jesus now at the end of the week has been arrested. He's gone through several interrogations. He's been convicted both of blasphemy on the religious side and convicted of high treason against Rome on the political side. And so then last week we've watched as he, the, the soldiers have begun to carry out uh, this sentence against him as he was first of all flogged, we saw it a couple weeks ago, and then uh, mocked as it's mock coronation by the soldiers beaten, and then taken out last week to be crucified. And when last week when we left Jesus, uh, it was uh, early in the morning, uh, he had just been nailed to the cross, uh, his arms had been stretched out on the patibulum, the cross beam, laid in the dirt, uh, the, the railroad spikes driven through his forearms, hoisted up by four Roman soldiers, put on top of the vertical pole, uh, put in place there, his ankles in, uh, nailed into the sides of the cross, and then we watched him being mocked, mocked by the religious leaders, mocked by the passerbys, mocked by the other prisoners, political prisoners being crucified, and so we left him there. And so we're going to pick up the story there today, pick up the account. So if you have your Bibles, uh, you're going to go to uh, Matthew or Mark chapter uh, 15, and uh, we'll pick it up at verse 33, and there in your note sheet, you have a section that's called the Crucifixion Part 2. And so uh, as we jump into this, uh, let me say this, that crucifixions were not designed to be speedy affairs. Uh, they, they were designed to last four days. Uh, we often think of the crucifixions happening very quickly, but uh, that they were actually often would last for days. Uh, the prisoner would be hung on the cross, um, and then um, he would just be uh, kind of hung there to, to die. And so he'd be out in the hot sun, uh, be there in the cold night. You've got flies coming into your wounds. You can't slap them away. Uh, there's no place to go to the bathroom, so if you have to urinate or you have to uh, have a bowel movement, you're going to do it right there. The foot of the cross is often, uh, we talk about kneeling at the foot of the cross, this may change your view of that, but um, 
that it's going to be blood, it's going to be urine, it's going to be defecation, it's going to be uh, just a horrendous sight. The prisoner's going to be there naked, uh, there for all to see. So it's a, it's a humiliation, and it's, a, it's a designed to last. It's not going to be over quickly. Uh, usually when prisoners would die, they would die of a wide variety of causes, but the most common cause was asphyxiation. That what would happen is you're hanging there on the cross, uh, that in order to breathe, you would have to pull yourself up against the nails or push yourself up against the nails, which is extremely painful. In fact, uh, the Romans created a word to describe the pain of the cross. The word cross in Latin is the word crux. The work they described was excruciating, excruciating. And so the idea was is that to breathe, you have to pull yourself up or push yourself up in the nails. This obviously over time becomes exhausting. And so typically, prisoners would die of asphyxiation. They wouldn't be able to breathe. They, they were so exhausted, they're no longer able to pull themselves up, and so they just die in their own uh, fluids, in their, their lungs. And so uh, what we're going to see today, though, is Jesus dies uh, in terms of a crucifixion. He's going to die very rapidly. And uh, he seems to be in control of that process. And so we're going we're to see how that happens today. And so we're going to pick it up at verse uh, 33. And so uh, at the sixth hour, darkness came over the whole land until the ninth hour. So remember last week we saw Jesus uh, crucified, Mark says, around nine in the morning. Now it's the uh, sixth hour, it's noon. And, uh, uh, and so he's been on the cross at least three hours. And about this point, uh, all of a sudden there's uh, what would appear to be like a, uh, like a solar eclipse. Now, scientifically, there's no evidence that we have that that period in time there was a solar eclipse. So I'm not saying it was an eclipse, but it was very much like that. This eerie darkness uh, comes over the whole earth. It's almost like uh, heaven is closing its eyes. It's, uh, it's like God is just, there's, there's a judgment coming over planet earth. Uh, often in the Bible, uh, judgment is represented by darkness. In fact, there in your note sheet in the book of Amos, there's a prophecy in the Old Testament about the coming judgment on the nation of Israel. And uh, here's an example. It says, in that day, declares the sovereign Lord. Lord, of course, all caps means Yahweh. In that day, declares the sovereign Yahweh, I will make the sun go down at noon and darken the earth in broad daylight. And so whether this is a prophecy about the crucifixion or not, we don't know, but, but it's a picture of, of God's judgment, right? So, so we're going to see a couple supernatural signs today. We're going to see a couple supernatural cosmic signs that God does to show that what's happening is a huge, this is a, a, a huge point in human history, and that what's going on in the unseen realm is tremendous. We'll be talking more about that uh, next week. So anyway, uh, it goes dark, and it's going to stay dark, Mark says, until the ninth hour. So if you're there, very eerie, right? It's just all of a sudden, it's just uh, middle of the day, it's uh, noon, and yet the, it's, it's getting very dark out. And so at the ninth hour, this is three o'clock in the afternoon. And it's interesting because um, at three o'clock in the afternoon every day. Now remember that this crucifixion is taking place right outside the city walls of Jerusalem. Right inside the city walls are the temple. At the temple, God had commanded Israel that every morning and every evening they were to offer a, a sacrifice of a lamb. The, the morning sacrifice would take place at 9. The evening sacrifice would take place at 3. And so it's interesting, at 3 o'clock, 
uh, at the exact moment when the, uh, in the temple grounds, they're in front of the temple, the Lamb of God is being sacrificed on Passover day, that outside uh, on the cross at three o'clock, something very significant is happening. The Lamb of God on the cross, something very significant is happening. So at the ninth hour, Jesus cries out in a loud voice, and he cries out, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani. Now, this is Aramaic. And so Mark's going to translate it for his Roman readers. And what it is, is the first verse, the first line of the first verse from Psalm 22, which is a messianic psalm about the suffering of the Messiah. Very famous psalm, a very graphically detailed uh, prophetic psalm about how the Messiah will suffer. And so Mark translates it, and he translates it, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Because there's Jesus there, he's hanging, and he's crying out, Eloi, Eloi, in his mother tongue, uh, Aramaic, uh, lama sabachthani, right? And so uh, Mark translates. Now here's just a quick sidebar in this. Uh, scholars will disagree as to what's happening at this moment. There are many theologians who believe that at this moment in time, that God was placing the sins of the world upon the Son, upon Jesus. Right? So that we, we read last week in 2 Corinthians 5, that God made him who knew no sin to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God. This idea of substitution we talked about last week. Uh, so there are many scholars, many theologians who believe that at this moment in time, that all the sins of all time, so think about that, what that would be like. Think of your worst sin you've ever committed. Think of the shame you felt. Think of the guilt you felt, the remorse you felt. Now imagine that all the shame, all the guilt of all time is being placed on the Messiah at this point. Uh, and this, this would result in, in a separation from God because God has going to turn his back on the Son and so these theologians believe that, that this was the greatest pain that Jesus actually went through. This was what he was afraid of the night before in Gethsemane. This is what caused him to sweat as it were drops of blood. This, this uh, fear of being torn apart from his father, his soul being ripped apart. Now, we don't really know if that's true or not. It's one theory, right? Uh, there are other theologians who believe, no, that's not what's going on. That if you were to read Psalm 22 and read it all the way through the end, it describes the suffering of the Messiah, but at the end, he is vindicated, and God rescues him, and the whole earth uh, comes to know Yahweh through his suffering. And so there are other scholars who believe, no, what's going on here is Jesus is going through this tremendous suffering. He is entering into the suffering of that psalm. He's quoting the psalm, but he's quoting it as rabbis often would to quote the beginning of a psalm uh, to send the message of the whole psalm. That, that he is suffering, uh, he is entering in, but he knows, he's trusting that God's going to vindicate him. And so you can pay your money and take your choice. But, but so uh, there's kind of different views of what's going on. What we do know for sure is that he is bearing the sin of the world. What he was experiencing psychologically, who knows? It's hard to know, but he seems to be in great pain here, great suffering, as he calls out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? But he calls out in Aramaic. Now, there's some passerbys there, some people just watching. You know how like when there's an accident, people looky loose. Uh, the people are just kind of passing by, and they're, they're like, hey, wait a second, I think he's calling for Elijah. Now, in Hebrew, the word, when you say Eloi, Eloi in Aramaic, it sounds like Elijah uh, in Hebrew. 
And so they're thinking, hey, I think he's calling for Elijah. Well, why would he be calling for Elijah? Well, remember in the Old Testament, Elijah is one of the two men who never dies. Uh, Enoch is is taken up uh, uh, into the presence of the Lord. uh, But Elijah, remember when he dies, remember there's a chariot of fire. And later on in uh, the Old Testament, there's a prophecy that when the Messiah comes, that uh, Elijah will prepare the way. And so there were uh, lots of uh, traditions and legends that had grown up about, uh, uh, around Elijah. And one of the traditions or uh, legends was that during times of great suffering, that uh, Elijah would sometimes come to help the righteous person. And so uh, as Jesus cries out, Eloi, Eloi, this one guy's thinking, they think he's calling for Elijah. And they're like, whoa, what's going to happen here? This is going to be cool. And so, so this one guy, he's going to run up. He's going to go and he's going to get this cheap wine, all right? There's wine there. The, the, the soldiers would drink. Uh, poor people would drink. It was kind of like the two-buck chuck of the day. And they kind of runs up and he gets this wine. He puts it on a sponge and he lifts it up to Jesus, which, which tells us that Jesus is crucified a little higher than normal. Normally, you're crucified at eye level. Uh, that he's because you got to raise the sponge up there because this guy wants to prolong Jesus' life and see if Elijah comes. It's like, hey, let's let's not, I don't want him to die. Yeah, let's see what happens here. Okay. So here we go. So he calls out Eloi, uh, Eloi, Eli, Lama Sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And then some of those standing near, they hear this. They say, listen, he's calling for Elijah. And so one man gets so excited, he runs and fills a sponge with wine vinegar, puts it on the stick, and offers it to Jesus to drink. Now, leave him alone. Let's see if Elijah comes to take him down. So he's kind of, kind of a spectator type situation here. Kind of a gladiator type. You know, you think of the, kind of the let's just watch him. Die. Oh, this, oh, that's going to happen. And, uh, but of course, Elijah isn't going to come. And I want you to cast this in verse 37. With a loud cry, Jesus breathed his last. And this is it. He's dead. He's gone. Just like when your grandmother died, or your best friend who was in a car accident died, or your buddy in the war died, or your child died, your parent died, he's gone. He's dead. And it's interesting here because Mark says he, he cried out with a loud cry. And uh, this would suggest that he did not die of normal causes. M- remember what I, I said before, that normally people would last on the cross for a long period of time, often days. He's been there, according to Mark's account, for six hours. There's no question he's gone through a lot of beatings, floggings. Sometimes men would die from the floggings. Uh, but no, remember what I said, that typically men would die on the cross because they couldn't breathe any longer. They were so exhausted, they can't pull themselves up, and so they just die. So when people die, they go out with a whimper, not with a bang. When people die on a cross, they don't go out with a loud cry. They can't breathe. They can't take any air in their lungs. Jesus goes out with a loud cry. It's like a battle cry. It's like a war cry. Um, it's interesting. In Luke's gospel, Luke says the last thing that Luke records he said. 
is, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. God, my Father, I'm trusting you with my life. Um, Which suggests that whatever was happening earlier, you know, Father turning the back or not turning, I mean, whatever's happened, that's been resolved, right? Um, in In John's account, he says the last thing, and he records that Jesus said, is it is finished. It is done. The assignment that the Father has given him, he has been faithful, he's finished it, therefore he's ready to die. But notice what Mark says. Mark says that he went out with a loud cry. And for me, I picture this like the movie Braveheart. Have you ever seen that movie? It's like, for many years, like you asked me, favorite movie, Braveheart, right? Love that movie. If, you, if you've ever seen it, you remember that one of the last scenes where William Wallace, who has fought for the freedom of his people, he saw him been captured. It's a public execution. They disembowel him. And as he's laying there screaming, and when he gets done, he could hardly breathe. And the executioner says, I think he wants to say something. And he screams out the loud voice, freedom. Remember that? Well, this is what I see Jesus doing. Except he's not screaming out freedom. He's screaming out, it is finished. Well, Mark says second supernatural sign takes, jumps in at this point. Uh, Remember, the, 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 the temple is not very far away. It's inside the city walls, but it's not very far away. At this point, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. This is a huge curtain. We'll talk about this later. Uh, something significant in the unseen realm is happening. And what you have is this huge, thick temple curtain that we'll talk about later that all of a sudden, supernaturally, it's ripped from top to bottom. God's sending a message. Something is going on in the unseen realm. And so in verse 39, there's a centurion standing there. Now, this has been a weird day for him. A Roman centurion is a military officer of the Roman army, which is the, one of the most uh, fearful armies ever been created in the history of the world. Uh, He's a a man who oversees a hundred soldiers. Fierce warrior, right? I mean, this is, uh, you think of the movie Gladiator, and you think of the opening scenes, the Roman armies against the Visigoths or whoever they were, the the hordes. And uh, so he's he's this fierce warrior, right? And his job, apparently, is to oversee crucifixions. So he's overseeing the squad that has crucified Jesus and the other prisoners. And so he's seen lots of crucifixions. He's, uh, this is for him, like I said last week, another day at the office. But this day has been freaky from day one. Um, we don't know exactly how much he knows, but I would assume certain things. I, I would assume 
that he knows uh, what Jesus' crime is. I mean, it's, it's posted over his head, King of the Jews. I would assume he'd heard something of his trial. Uh, he may have been there for the beating and the mock coronation. Don't know that. But we do know that Jesus was brought to him uh, brutally beaten, and, and he oversaw him as he was nailed to the cross. We, we know that. We know that he's watched him mock. I mean, chances he's stationed there uh, in, in Jerusalem. Chances are he knows of Jesus' reputation. Uh, Jesus is famous in this city. He's recently opened the eyes of a blind. He's, op- he's recently uh, uh, healed, uh, healed a lame man at the, the pools of Bethesda. Uh, he has recently raised Lazarus from the dead. It's the talk of the town. We, we know all this. And so he's stationed there. He must have heard something about the reputation of this man. He knows the charges against him. And yet this man is not responding like any other prisoner he's ever crucified. Normally when prisoners are crucified, they're mean, they're vindictive, they're angry, they're, uh, they're cursing, they're swearing, they're yelling at the soldiers, right? Uh, he's watched today as this man's been mocked all day, but he's never responded in kind. In fact, instead of responding uh, when he's cursed with with, with cursing back, uh, he has prayed for his oppressors. In Luke's gospel, we're told that he prayed and said, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. Uh, at one point in the cross, apparently uh, one of the men next to him is a change of heart, and he says, Jesus, remember me in your kingdom. We know this is from Luke's gospel. And Jesus uh, is very compassionate. He takes care of me. He says, hey, listen, today you'll be with me in paradise. Towards the end of he's hanging there in excruciating pain, uh, he sees his mother there, and he sees one of his disciples, John, who apparently had come back, the only one who had come back, and he's concerned about her future. He's the oldest son in the family. He's responsible for his mob. We don't know what had happened to his brothers at this point or all of them or whatever, but he says to John, he says, John, would you take her into your family and take care of her? He's taking care of his mother from the cross. Like this centurion has never seen anything like that. You put together, you put together the, the reputation for miracles, you put together the, the accusations, you put together the beatings, the way he's responded to all of this, the way he's pronounced forgiveness, And then all of a sudden, this eerie darkness comes over the land for the last three hours. It's freaking him out. It's freaking him out. Like, what is going on? And then when Jesus lets out this last cry, it is finished like a battle cry. He's never seen anyone die like this before. And he is blown away. Remember what Jesus claimed. Before the Sanhedrin, are you the son of the blessed? Yes, I am. Apparently, he'd heard the reputation. He'd heard the talk. And so the moment Jesus dies, with a loud cry, verse 37, Jesus breathes his last. The curtain of the temple is torn from top to bottom. And when the centurion who stood there in front of Jesus, he had front row seats all day, he heard his cry, and he saw how he died, he said, surely... This man was the Son of God. Now, that's a remarkable statement from a Roman centurion. Honestly, we don't know what he meant by this. I mean, was God giving him a flash of insight? 
and to be understood truly who Jesus was, kind of like we would understand that today, who he is, the son of God, God in the flesh, I kind of doubt that. That seems like a little bit much to ask. Maybe. Maybe that's what he meant. Uh, Maybe uh, he's from a Roman background. He believes in the gods, right? He believes in Zeus. He believes in Hermes. He believes in Jupiter, the the Zeus, uh, kind of uh, Roman uh, Roman Zeus. Uh, He believes in the gods. Maybe he's thinking this is a son of the gods, like Hercules. You know, it's like I've just seen something amazing. Like, we don't really know. But Mark puts it here because it becomes the high point of the gospel. This is the high point. Because no one in the gospel has recognized who Jesus is and called him by his true name yet. This is the first guy. He's not a Jew. And he's not a leader. He's not a disciple. He's a Roman. He's a Gentile. We'll come back to that. And so we come to the end of Mark's account of the interrogation, the trials, the convictions, the beatings, the floggings, the mocking of the execution of Jesus. And Jesus is now limp, hanging from his own weight on the cross, waiting to be taken down. And the question I want to ask today is the same question we've been asking the last couple weeks. And the question is, why? If you've been here the last couple weeks, we've talked about this, Jesus easily could have avoided this humiliating death. As you watch him there today, hanging by his own weight in excruciating pain, calling out, my God, my God, Why have you forsaken me? Naked, humiliated, his normal bodily urges just has to go while he's there in front of the world, being mocked by passerbys, by the religious leaders, by the guards, by the fellow political prisoners. The question is why? And what we've said the last couple of weeks is when you go to the New Testament and you ask that question, there's not one answer that's given. There are many answers that are given. And so what we've been doing the last couple of weeks is just coming back, asking the question and spinning the diamond, the diamond of the cross. Every time we spin it, it's like a different facet of beauty comes through. And today there are three events that happen in this last three hours of his life They give us more insight into who Jesus is, why he had to die, specifically why he had to die on a cross, and what it means for our lives. And so there in your note sheet, you have a section. And it's called the crucifixion, the curse, the curtain, and the centurion. Or son. Mine's a centurion. The curse, the, uh, the crucifixion, the curse, the curtain, and the son. Um, and I want to talk about these three elements the curse, the curtain, and the son. And what we learn about Jesus through them. All right, so here we go. Number one 
The first principle that jumps out, and what I'm going to do today for each of the principles, we're going to fill in some blanks, and then afterwards, I'm going to make you work for it. I'm going to make you, uh, in parentheses, add something more, just to strengthen it, all right? So here we go. So number one, the cross removes the curse. The first thing we're going to talk about is the curse, and we say the cross removes the curse, um, and it restores the blessing. So we're going to see that the cross of Jesus, why do the cross? It, rest- it removes the curse that's over our lives as a race, and it restores the blessing. Now, you say, well, what do you mean it restores or removes the curse? Well, here's what the Bible says. If you go back to the beginning of our story as a race, uh, God creates us for blessing, doesn't he? In fact, in Genesis chapter 3, we're told three times that God, as he creates the world, that he blesses it. What we see in chapter 2, the, the Garden of Eden, and that God's amazing love is he's providing for uh, the human race, and he is loving us, and we're designed to be blessed in every area of our life, right? We were designed for blessing. But in chapter 3 of Genesis, we rebel against our true king, and we uh, come under the judgment of death, and all of creation comes under a what? A curse. In fact, there on your note sheet, in Genesis chapter 3, this is God speaking to the first man. Remember his name, we call him Adam, but in Hebrew, uh, man is Adam. So he's like speaking to the first man, uh, Adam. And he says, uh, cursed is the ground because of you. And through painful toil, you'll eat of it all the days of your life. And so, so as we rebel against God, we come under judgment of a variety of forms. Ultimate judgment is death at every level, right? Emotional, uh, uh, sociological, relational, uh, physical, spiritual, death at every level. And all of creation comes under a curse. But from the very beginning, even there in the garden, God began to promise and predict that one day someone would come who would remove the curse and restore the blessing. And by the time we get to chapter 12 of Genesis, God calls a man named Abraham. And God begins to restore the blessing. And he says, Abraham, I will bless you. And then he says, through you, all the nations of the earth will one day be blessed. See, God is working to restore the blessing. And then, of course, the nation of Israel comes from Abraham. And God enters into covenant relationship with him, much like a marriage. He says, I, I, I want you to be mine. You, I will be yours. And they enter into this, this marriage-type relationship. And here's they're part of their wedding vows. I mean, God says, if you, if you love me and if you love one another, I will bless you. In fact, we get to Deuteronomy 28, the end of the Pentateuch, the, kind of the, the last words of Moses. He lays out for Israel the blessings and the curses. And he says to the nation of Israel, if you will serve the Lord, he will bless you in every area. He'll bless you in the home. He'll bless you in the field. He'll bless you when you go out. He'll bless you when you come in. He'll bless the, the fruit of your womb. He'll bless your crops. God wants to restore the blessing. And if you'll love him, have eyes for him only, and you love one another, God will pour out his blessing. He says, however, 
If you run after other gods, you reject his leadership, you oppress one another, these are the curses that will come. And so, of course, the nation of Israel is a story of rebellion. It's really our story. They're a case story for our story. Because of their fallen human nature, they rebel. And they come under the curses. They lose their land. They're taken away. By the time we get to the New Testament, we realize that it's not just the nation of Israel who's rebelled against God. We've all rebelled, haven't we? Whether we know the law of God like they have the law of God, whether you were raised with the Bible or not, the, we, we, Paul says in Romans, we all have the moral law of God written on our hearts. We all know right from wrong. And we've all violated it. And so the end result is that we're all under a curse because we've all disobeyed the law of God. We've not chosen the path of blessing. We've chosen the path of curse. And so as a race, we're under the curse. And, and this is why, men and women, we have to say, this is why Jesus came to remove the curse and restore the blessing. And and this is exactly what Paul says, because here's what happens. Back in Deuteronomy chapter 21, God spoke to the nation of Israel, and he said, hey, there are some crimes that are so heinous that you need to execute. You need to apply capital punishment. And he said that after you've executed the person who's rebelled against me, I want you to hang their body on a tree. Now, why? As a sign that they are under my curse. As a message to the nation, don't do this. Much like the Romans would hang a person on a cross saying, don't do this. God's saying, after you execute them, usually by stoning, then we're going to hang them on a tree. That person's under a curse. So are you with me here? That in in Israel's culture, to hang from a tree means you're cursed of God. This is why the religious leaders wanted Jesus crucified. It's more than they wanted him dead. They wanted him hung from a tree. Because this would be the ultimate proof that he was an imposter, that he was not the Messiah. He was not the Son of God. He was a cursed of God man. Are you with me here? And men and women, this is why Jesus went to the cross. He couldn't have died in a back room alley being stabbed. He couldn't, be die, he couldn't die by being thrown off a precipice in Nazareth early in his ministry. He couldn't be, die in a mob scene or when they picked up stones to stone him. It couldn't happen. He had to die on a tree. And you say, why? Because, remember we learned last week about substitution? He came to took, take the curse that's over your life. His life for your life. He takes the curse so that the blessing can be restored to us. Are you with me? Are you following this? This is what Paul says in Galatians chapter 3. There in your note sheet, he walks us through this. And 
And it says, Christ redeemed. Remember, Christ means what? Messiah. He says, Christ redeemed us. He rescued us from the curse of the law. What's the curse of the law? Well, cursed is every man who, or cursed is every man who doesn't keep the law that God has given. That's what the, what the Old Testament said. And so we violate the law of God in our lives, whether it's the written word or the moral law of God, we're under the curse. So he says, he, re- he rescued us, he redeemed us from the curse of the law. How do you do that? By becoming a curse for us. Well, how did he become a curse for us? Paul says, well, for it's written, this is a quote from Deuteronomy 21, cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. You see? He became the curse. Going to the cross for execution wasn't an accident. He went on purpose to take the curse that was over your life and remove it so that there's nothing left for God to do but to bless you. You see? There is no longer any reason for you to be cursed because the curse that was over your life because of all that you've done or all that you will ever do in rebellion, he took that curse by becoming a curse for us. So he says he redeemed us in order that the blessing given to Abraham, what was the blessing given to Abraham? Chapter 12 of Genesis Through you, all the nations of the world will be blessed. A prophecy about the Messiah. He said that the hope that given to Abraham might come to Gentiles through Christ Jesus so that by faith we might receive the promise of the Spirit. Remember we learned a couple weeks ago about adoption? Remember that, that God has not only forgiven us, He's adopted us, He sent the Spirit of His Son into our lives the Christ, Abba, Father, how, what was the price? How, how could that happen? How could he redeem us when we're under a curse of God by becoming a curse for us? Now, men and women, I want you to catch this, what this means. I don't know how you feel in your life. I don't know, as a Christ follower, I don't know if you feel blessed or not. I think the reality is, for many of us, we've come to Jesus but we're still deep within us, we are carrying the curse. Some of you were cursed by your parents. Some of you heard your parents say, I wish you were never born. It was a mistake to have you. Some of you feel the curse of your own sin. That you have done things so heinous that it's just hard for you to forgive yourself. It's hard to move on. And you carry that sense of curse. You're, you're like a cursed person. And so when you come into relationship with God, it's hard for you to believe that He loves you and He wants to bless you. Because deep inside you feel like, I've done something that's worthy of a curse. And I know that that's what it says, but I don't feel like a blessed person. Are you with me in this? Like, if I were to ask you today, do you feel that you live under the blessing of God? Do you believe in your heart of hearts that God wants to pour out his blessing on you at every level? Do you believe that? Do you believe that God loves you passionately and he lives to bless you? 
my hunch is that many of us would say no. If I'm truly honest, I feel like I've made it in by the skin of my teeth. And I'm living on borrowed time. And every time he blesses me, I just feel like it's almost like a mistake, like something slipped through the cracks. And I got what someone else deserved. Remember, I want you to get that the curse has been removed. He has no desire for you but to bless you. And so this theme of blessing, that the blessing we lost in the garden is the blessing that gets restored in Christ. And so look there in your note sheet what Paul says in Ephesians chapter 1 and 2. In Ephesians chapter 1, Paul says, Praise to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Messiah who has blessed us in the heavenly realms. In other words, that we've been raised up with Christ. Uh, He's blessed us with every spiritual blessing in Christ. In other words, everything that God has in his blessing box is yours. Now notice here, it doesn't say every physical blessing, right? There's a false teaching that goes around periodically. If you trust God and you love God, nothing bad ever happens. You'll be rich, you'll be wealthy, you'll be successful. And of course, the New Testament doesn't teach that. It teaches that's when Jesus comes back, every physical blessing. What's it saying here? It is every spiritual blessing, the love of God, the forgiveness of God, the power of His Spirit, the leading of His Spirit. His work in your, everything the Holy Spirit has to offer is yours in Christ. Because the curse has been taken away and there's nothing left in his heart for you except blessing. Now, if there's any question about that, you go to chapter 2 of Ephesians. And look what Paul says, that God raised us up with Christ. Once we died with Christ, we talked about this last week, we we rose with Christ. Why did we die and why did we rise? Why did Christ die for us? In order that in the coming ages he might show the incomparable riches of his grace expressed in his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. Why did Jesus go to the cross? So he could bless you full bore forever. That's what he's saying. Why did he do that? So that in coming ages, throughout eternity, he can just love on you. And so the question is, are you living under the curse or under the blessing? Catch this. Before we leave this point, I want you to catch this, that this curse that Jesus went to the cross to take, it's not just for us, it's for all creation. Remember in Genesis, all creation came out of the curse, right? And so Jesus came. And so in Romans chapter 8, we won't look there, but in Romans chapter 8, Paul says that all creation is groaning right now, longing to be set free from its bondage to decay and into the freedom of the children of God. Talking about when Jesus comes back to restore creation, what it's meant to be, new heavens, new earth. But you get a glimpse of this in Revelation 22. 
So the start of this human story is we're, we're created for blessing and then we come under curse. Genesis 3. The end of the story, the last book of the Bible, Genesis 22, God, uh, John has a vision of the new Jerusalem, which is a symbolic picture of the new heavens, the new earth. Right? It's highly symbolic. But look how he describes it. He describes it in terms of, uh, of Genesis. And he says in Revelation 22, the angel showed me the river of water of life as clear as crystal flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb down the middle of the great street of the city, talking about the new Jerusalem. On each side of the river stood the tree of life. Remember in the Garden of Eden was the tree of life. So what he's saying is a picture. It's being restored. Life's being restored. And then he says, no longer will there be any what? Curse. See, why did Jesus come? Why did he go to the cross? He came to remove the curse and restore the blessing. And so the moment you come to Jesus, the curse is removed from your life. And you now live under the blessing. Can I tell you something? It's one of the richest words in the Bible, this concept of blessing. We don't use it a lot, except like when you're tight, you know? God bless you, right? We don't use it a lot. But in the Bible, it's one of the richest words. We were created to live under blessing. And this is what God has come to restore, what Christ has come to restore. And so many times in my own life when I'm praying, a lot of you know how I pray. I kind of journal it out when I'm praying. And I'll put someone's name or the church or something I'm praying for there in the middle in a box, draw that kind of arc over the top. And I put words over that person. I speak words over that person or over that, this church or whatever it is. And one of the most common words I write over the top I mean, as I was praying yesterday, Starbucks Plaza, right? And so many times, number one word, blessing. The blessing of God. And this is why for you as believers, we open up the New Testament. We read through, like, say, Paul's epistles, letters, or Peter's letters. So often they start like this, grace and peace to you from God. Why? Because the curse has been removed. And that's all God has for you is grace and peace. Now, now discipline, yes. Because the Father, he loves us and we get out of line. He's going to hold us accountable. But this is not an act of condemnation when that happens. It's an act of grace and love. We live under the blessing because of the cross of Christ. Amen? Amen. Amen. Let's move on. i got to get out of here by 12. All right. The 11, 11 o'clock people, they come so late, they won't know the difference. Um, okay. The nice thing is they're awake, and you usually aren't, so it's really welcome. It's nice to have you here today. Uh, number two. When we're going to talk about the, we're going to talk about the curse, the curtain, and the sun. So here we go. The cross rips the curtain. And then we're going to put in parentheses, and it restores the presence. It rips the curtain. It restores the presence. Mark says that at the moment that Jesus died, the curtain in the temple was torn from top to bottom. Now, this was massive. Remember, the temple was massive. There was actually a couple different uh, curtains in the temple. We're not sure which one for sure. We think we know. We're not sure. 
uh, one temple kind of separated the, going into the temple itself from the courtyard. And so, uh, so the priest could go in, you know, behind the first curtain and into the, into the, uh, the, the, the temple itself. And that, that, that uh, huge, huge, massive curtain was uh, woven in Babylonia. It was uh, embroidered with uh, uh, pictures of uh, heaven and earth because the temple is a place where heaven meets earth, right? It's representing all of creation. And so there was, there was one there, but when you were actually inside the temple, remember only priests could go inside. Once you get inside the temple, uh, at the back of the temple was, uh, was a, another compartment uh, called the holiest place. We call it holy of holies. It's the way Hebrew works. The holy of holies means the holiest of all. And so back in the holy of holies, there was, there was a curtain that separated the, the main compartment of the temple uh, where the priests would operate from the back compartment. And in the back compartment, only the high priest could go and only one day of year on Yom Kippur the Day of Atonement. This is what we talked about last week, Leviticus 16. So this is where he'd go in to make atonement for the people. You remember that from last week? And he would go in with the blood of a bull for himself, blood of a goat, and he would make atonement there uh, over the Ark of the Covenant, uh, although it was gone by this time. But that, that was the idea. You'd go in and you'd make atonement, right? So these, these um, curtains, here's what I want you to catch. These curtains are a picture of separation, the reason a curtain is there is to send a message. And the message is our relationship with God has been broken. And so we can't enter the presence. Adam and Eve walked with God. They lived in the presence. After sin, they got put out of the garden. They had to leave that first temple, the Garden of Eden. They had to move out. And so throughout their history, God has taught his people that that there's a separation, that sin has separated us, and we can no longer come into the presence of God. The closest you can get is one guy once a year representing the nation. We just can't go in the presence of God. But the moment that Jesus dies, this massive curtain, veil, is torn from top to bottom. What's going on here? is God is sending a message that the way to the presence of God has been opened up. That, that, you're no long, that you no longer are you separate from the presence of You can enter the presence of God. Um, and, and as in Hebrews, we find out that it's not, it's not through a high priest. There's a greater high priest. Jesus has become a greater high priest. And he's gone through a greater curtain into the heaven itself, and he's gone with greater blood, not the blood of bulls or goats, but his own. And so there in Hebrews, I put on your note sheet from the New Living Translation, I just like the way it described it. It said, uh, dear brothers and sisters, we can now boldly, and I want you to uh, circle that word, that's the key, boldly enter, not, not with fear, not with uh, wondering like, uh, how's this going to go? Uh, not, not like, uh, are we going to come out alive? Not whether, uh, are we going to be accepted? We can boldly enter into heaven's most holy place, the holy of holies, because of the blood of Jesus. And by his death, Jesus opened up a new and life-giving way through the what? The curtain. Through the curtain. 
into the most holy place. And since we have a great high priest, who's that? Jesus, who rules over God's house, his temple. Let us go right into the presence of God with sincere hearts, fully trusting him. Whenever I read this, I always have the picture of the young kids of the President of the United States. I have to use my imagination sometimes. Hey, when you're going to go in the Oval Office, you need to be invited in, right? You just don't run in unless you're his kids. And then kids can, kids can come in any time, right? Most people that come in my office have a meeting, they have need an appointment. Not my kids, not my grandkids, not my wife. Grandkids especially. Got Skittles there, special little deal for them. <laughs> they know where the Skittles are. Boom, come on in, Right? And this is what Mark's telling us when the, the, the curtain was torn, is that God is sending a message. And the message is because of the death of Jesus, we are entering into a new era of human history. And you no longer have to worship God in a temple. You no longer have to go to Jerusalem. There's no longer a wall between you and God. That the presence of God has been opened up. And as a follower of Jesus, by the blood of Christ, you're able to run into your Father's office. You're able, the presence of God has been restored. In fact, the New Testament goes so far as to say, and we've talked about this before in this series, that now that God has actually entered into our lives and we have become the temple. And so now, as followers of Jesus, the blessing of Abraham, remember what we just said, the gift of the Spirit has been given to our lives, your life and my life, we have now become the temple, your life is the place where God is revealed, your life is where the presence of God is manifested, your life is to be the place where heaven meets earth, the veil has been torn, you see? And this is the level of relationship that God wants, and this is why Jesus embraced the cross. And that leads to number three. Number three is that the cross reveals the Son. And in parentheses, we'll put, and the Father. The cross reveals the Son and the Father. You say, well, what do I mean? Well, I want you to think about this. Uh, from the beginning of the gospel... You and I have known who Jesus is. At least we know who Mark believes he is. Because in the very first verse, Mark introduced Jesus to us. Remember this? There in your note sheet? The beginning of the gospel, the good news about Jesus Christ, the Messiah, in other words, uh, the Son of what? Son of God. And I, and I talked about this time that at the very beginning, Mark introduces This is a story. It's a story about a man. His name is Jesus. He's the Messiah. And he's more than a man. And he's more than the Messiah. He is the Son of God. In other words, he's made out of God's stuff. He's God in the flesh. God has come to rescue. That's what the story is about. So you and I have known from day one who Jesus is. Or at least who Mark believes he is. But I want you to catch this, up till this point in the gospel, no one else has realized who Jesus is. The crowds haven't got it. The religious leaders certainly don't get it. They just crucified him. But even Jesus' disciples don't get it. You remember back in Mark 8, 
where they have this revelation, Peter says, you are the Christ, you're the Messiah, right? But even there, they have a wrong idea. They think Messiah is like King David 2.0. They think he's just going to be kind of like a better David, human being, uh, powered by God. They don't really understand who Jesus in his essence is. That he's the son of God. He's made out of God's stuff. They don't don't get that. God with us. They don't get that yet. In fact, this weekend of their life, as Jesus hangs there on the cross, they are the most confused people in the city. Because there's a couple things they know about messiahs. Messiahs don't die. They don't lose. And messiahs for sure don't get hung on a cross. You're in the curse of God. So they're the most confused guys on the planet. They're out hiding for their lives right now. Wondering what they've done with their lives. They've backed the wrong horse. They made the biggest mistake of their lives. And so Mark says, in the midst of all this confusion, there's one guy who's going to realize who Jesus is, and he's the least likely to succeed in his high school class. He's the least likely to succeed spiritually. He's not a Jew, he's a Roman. Likely a pagan. But catch this. That not only is he the first to use the right name to describe Jesus in Mark's gospel. To realize who Jesus is. But when does he realize it? At the moment of his death. Because it's at the moment of his death that we understand Jesus and the heart of God more than any other time. Because it's, it's when we realize who is on that cross that he's not just a prophet, he's not just a miracle worker, he's not just a Messiah, that it's God hanging on that cross. That we begin to understand the price that this God is willing to pay to remove the curse for our lives and restore the blessing. That we can enter into the presence and men and women, this is exactly what Jesus said. Mark puts this here. Most scholars believe that Mark is sending a message to his, his people in Rome who are mostly Gentiles. That when Jesus died, it wasn't just for Israel. It was for the whole world. It was for men like this Roman centurion who just oversaw his crucifixion. And so this is what Jesus said the very last week of his life in John's gospel. We we have it recorded. There it says in John chapter uh, 12, Jesus said, when I am lifted up from the earth, talking about his crucifixion, uh, the scene is he's in Jerusalem that last week, some Gentiles come and want to meet him. And Jesus says, it's starting. It's starting. Gentiles, not just Jews, are starting to come. And so he said, when I am lifted up from the earth, speaking of his crucifixion, I will draw whom? All men. In other words, not just Israel. I will draw the world to myself. And so men and women, this is the message that we've been entrusted with as a church, as the body of Christ, that one is come to remove our curse and restore the blessing. Uh, That one has come to rip the curtain and restore the presence of God in our lives. 
This is the message that God himself has come in Christ to make a way for us to be restored to life. In fact, there in your note sheet, this is how Paul summarized it in 2 Corinthians 5. We read part of it last week. That God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself not counting their trespasses. And then this is the message that you and I have been, as a follower of Jesus, this is the message that's been entrusted to you, that there is a way to be restored to relationship with God. There is a way to have the curse removed. There is a way to live under the blessing of God. There is a way to have the curtain torn in your life and to have the presence of God flow into you as the temple. There is a way that one day the curse will be removed from all of creation. There is a new heavens. There is a new earth coming. And it's all because of Jesus Christ and what he did on the cross. And this is the message he's entrusted to you. And this is the message he's entrusted to me. And this is our assignment that we have as a church to share this message with those who don't know that there is a God who loves them who has come to remove the curse and restore the blessing and bring them back into the presence. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Lord, as we come today to worship you, God, as we reflect on this amazing message that you yourself came to bear the curse, the curse that was on us because of our rebellion, that we might be restored, that the curtain might be torn, that the presence we might be, uh, be re- returned to our life, and that you might be revealed. God, we pray that you'd mean us. And while our heads are bowed and our eyes are closed, I want to talk with those of you, uh, kind of a couple different kinds of people. Uh, First of all, I want to talk to you that you're, you're believers in Jesus, but deep in your heart, you've always felt, whether you want to admit it or not, that your life is still under the curse and not the blessing. And during this time of worship, I want you to ask God to begin to show you his love and blessing for your life. For some of you here, you're longing for a deeper relationship with God. You're a follower of Jesus, but you want to know him more. You want to experience his presence in your life at a deeper level. You want to be led by his spirit. There may be some things in your life that have to change to make that possible, but you're hungry for that. And during this time, I want you to ask him for that. And then there's some of us here that you're not a follower of Jesus yet, but you want to be. You're ready to leave your old life behind. You want the curse removed. You want the presence of God restored. You want to know who Jesus is. and You want him to reveal himself in your life. And if that's you, I'm going to say a very simple prayer right now, just giving you a chance to ask him into your life to to save you, that you would be one of his. And if that's the desire of your heart, would you just pray with me while our heads are bowed and our eyes are closed. Just pray along with me in your heart and mind, and God will hear. Dear Jesus... I ask you into my life. I pray you'd remove the curse and restore the blessing. I pray you'd rip the curtain and restore the presence. Send your spirit in my life. And I pray you'd reveal to me who you are and how to follow you. While our heads are bowed and our eyes are closed, if you just prayed that prayer, I want to first of all welcome you to the kingdom of God. And secondly, I want to ask you to do me a favor. During our time of worship, we'll be receiving the offering, and inside your program is a little card called a a connect card. If you fill out the front and then write in the back, Mike, I prayed the prayer, or I asked Christ in my life, I'll know what you mean, and then this week, I'll be able to send you a letter with some, just some, 
just some helpful advice on how to start this new journey with God. So, Father, we pray now as we come, as we celebrate the God who tore the veil, as we ponder on this calling to shout it from the rooftops, this message you give, we pray you'd meet us in a powerful way as we worship. In Christ's name, amen. Would you stand with me? Here I am, I stand with arms wide open to the one, the Son, the everlasting God. I don't know what happened to that Roman centurion, but I know that when God opens our eyes to who Jesus is, we have a choice to make. And when we choose to follow, the curse is removed, the presence is restored, and God is revealed. And this is the message he's called us to share with our generation. Amen? And this is why we're here as a church. You know, in a few short months, we're going to be moving back into our worship center. Yeah. And I'm telling you, it's going to be awesome. And I think the vast majority are going to love it. There may be one or two who don't. But here's what I want to remind you on this day, that this place we're building, it's not for us. That's not what this assignment's about. It's about your friends. It's about your loved ones. It's about your coworkers who don't know the message about the Son, the everlasting God. As a church, we want to stay focused on what our calling is, that we have been called to share this message of the One, the Son, the everlasting God. Amen? And together, as we love on people, as we pray over their lives, as we build relationships with our one lives, it's why we're here. It's why we're here to share the message of the one who's the curse breaker, the blessing restorer, the one who tears down walls, restores the presence of God, remakes our lives, the God who's revealed most clearly his heart on the cross. Amen? Amen. I hope you can be with us next week as we continue this journey. You know, we don't have many weeks left in Mark, uh, believe it or not. Uh, we're going to be done before you know it. First week of August, we're going to be done. And uh, I know it's gone super fast. But uh, next week, we're going to spin this diamond of the cross one last time. And we're going to talk about spiritual warfare. Because there's certain things that happened in the unseen realm with the death of Christ that broke us free from the power of the evil one. And as, as followers of Jesus, we need to know that greater is he who's in us than he who's in the world. And that we have been called to tread on serpents. We need to understand the authority we have over our homes, over our children, over our place of business. We need to understand that authority, that power we have in Christ. And so next week, we're going to talk about what happened when Jesus died in the unseen realm in the terms of spiritual warfare. Amen? And so I hope you can be with us. Until then, may the Christ of the cross be with you. May he bless your life in rich ways this week. May you know that you experience the presence of God that's been restored. And may he be revealed in all of his glory in new ways. Until then, God bless you. If you need prayer, don't forget afterwards we have the prayer corner. See you next week.